Testing, testing. Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Thank you for joining us once again. This week we are heading to Los Angeles and back to the 90s to take a deep dive into the brutal double murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. This is a massive case and that's why it's going to be told in two parts, but fear not, both parts will be out today. Now, despite having always been fascinated by this case, I've always avoided covering it because it is just so damn big, both physically and metaphorically. So when someone going by the Instagram handle at psychedupgirl got in touch to say that she would like to do all of the hard work for us, I was all ears. Even more so when she told me that she was a criminology teacher and a massive fan of seeing red. At Psyched Up Girl, or Rachel as I know her now, has done an amazing job with this and we are so, so grateful for the huge amount of time and energy that she has put into this. I am so excited for this episode, Mark. Uh, Me too, because we've both wanted to cover this. Absolutely. This case just, it's always gripped me and I didn't realise that you were so fascinated in it as well because I feel like we've never really talked about this. We haven't, no. I mean, this is what, 20 nine years old so we were both wee kiddies when this happened oh yeah but i mean even um there was a tv dramatization version which had david schwimmer i think as um and i don't even think we particularly discussed it then and i remember watching that tv show and it was such a good dramatization so yeah i'm really excited for this this double double bill It's highly likely that October the 3rd, 1995 marks the date on which OJ Simpson got away with murder. That was the date on which a jury acquitted him of the brutal slaying of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown, and her friend, Ron Goldman. But I think he did it. The LAPD believed he did it. The prosecution believed he did it. His psychiatrist believed he did it. And so too did the lie detector. His friends believed he did it, and the Goldman and Brown families believed he did it. Over half of black Americans and 83% of white Americans believed he did it. Juror number 247 believed he, quote, probably did it. A civil court believed he did it and convicted him of wrongful death. His own defence team believed he did it. Even Simpson himself, safe under the double jeopardy laws in America, released a book called If I Did It, Confessions of a Killer, which explained exactly how he hypothetically would have committed the crime an account that, not surprisingly, exactly fitted the evidence that was found at the scene. For the prosecution, this was a clear-cut case of domestic homicide. For the defence, it was a case about police racism. For the media, it was the trial of the century, and centre stage was a national sports hero beloved by Americans. For the population of Los Angeles, this was a case that highlighted the deep cultural divides in the city based on black and white, which had come to a head two years previously when the unprovoked beating of black motorist Rodney King by four LAPD officers had failed to lead to any convictions, triggering riots across the city. In the midst of these inflated egos and publicity junkies, the celebrity and the racial tension, what became lost was that this was a case where a young woman and a young man senselessly lost their lives in the most brutal fashion. In Nicole's case, leaving two young children to grow up without their mother. love this introduction. I love that you've just gone, I believe he did it. Because I think he did it too. And his book did not change my mind. It cemented everything I'd originally thought. And I think sometimes people are a bit 
worried about what their opinion is or saying it, but you're right, you're not the only one to think this. And I think most of our listeners would agree with both of us, to be honest, that they probably think he did it as well. But what I'd also say is Nicole and Ron always get kind of left to the side in this whole case when it's talked about. It's the OJ Simpson trial. It's OJ Simpson, blah, 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 this, this, this about OJ Simpson. Not Nicole and Ron, who are victims. And like you said, she's left behind children. It's it's really, really sad that they... We see this too often, though, don't we, on the show, that the victims aren't the key focus. P- particularly when it's a high-profile perpetrator, as, of course, is the case here. Yeah. Um, there is just almost a frenzy around it. But we will, throughout this two-parter, really get to know both um, Nicole and Ron as the real people that they were. Um, And yeah, two children absolutely lost a mum. She was 35 years old when she was murdered and it was brutal. And I'm going to take you to that now. The case starts on June the 12th in 1994, when a dog is heard barking in distress at around 10.15pm in a lower middle class area of Los Angeles called Brentwood. The beautiful white Akita was at the end of a path, barking persistently into the night sky. It had blood on its paws. A neighbour, curious about the insistence of the dog to bark at this particular house, took a closer look, and he probably wished that he hadn't. He was the first to come across the brutal and bloody crime scene. The body of 35-year-old Nicole Brown lay crumpled like a broken ragdoll on the front steps of the house. Curled up with her arms around her head, blood drained from her wounds. Aided by gravity, it flowed down the path, winding its way through the gullies between the stone tiles towards the sidewalk, where the neighbour stood with the traumatised Akita. Unseen to the shocked audience, a second body was also present, that of 25-year-old Ron Goldman. His life ended to the right side of the steps, where a fence and some foliage hid his remains from the eyes of passers-by. At the foot of Ron's body was a black hat, a single black glove and an envelope stained with blood. Heading away from the bodies was a trail of bloody footprints leading round the side of the house to the back gate, which opened into an alley. The back gate had blood on it. To the left of the footprints were droplets of blood. This and the discarded left glove suggested that the killer had been injured on his left hand and had left a gruesome trail for the police to follow. Was it deliberate that Nicole had been left for all to see, a final act of indignity, while Ron was an afterthought, collateral damage perhaps? The injuries to the bodies told a tale. While both had met a terrifying and vicious end, the ferocity of the wounds on Nicole's body suggested an anger so primal that it could have only ever been personal. Nicole had been stabbed three times in the scalp and there was blunt force trauma to her head. She'd also been stabbed in the neck four times. The knife had penetrated so deeply that on crime scene pictures, Nicole's spine can be seen through the injury on the front of her neck. And that is, isn't that just so graphic? It's just, I mean, that's a description and a half, isn't it? And it really shows how personal, I think, in this case that this attack was, because there's no getting away from the fact that you're I don't know, like your victim's going to see you, you're going to see them and it's all around the head and the face and the neck. I just, yeah. And yeah, what a description. Yeah, it really was a ferocious attack and it's difficult to avoid the crime scene photos online because they've 
been reproduced so much they're everywhere so unfortunately I've seen them I've not gone hunting for them but over the years I've come across them and yeah that front drive resembles an abattoir really there's so much blood there and I think it's it's easy to forget isn't it sometimes just how viscous blood is and how yeah bright it is in a in a scene and the photos I you usually see it tend to see like black and white pictures but even then you can you can just tell that it's blood everywhere it's yeah really shocking yeah and this was summer evening and it was warm and yeah you know it it attracted lots of bugs as well and yeah just a, a horrible scene to to encounter and Nicole had, had practically been decapitated, such was the severity of her stab wounds. There was a shoe print on her back, which suggested that the final action of her killer had been to hold her head back by her hair with a foot in her spine as he slit her throat. She was shown no mercy. The attack took a matter of minutes and Nicole died quickly. Many of the wounds would have proved fatal even in isolation, so there really was an element of overkill here. Nicole didn't stand a chance against the strength of her attacker, but she didn't go easily. Defence wounds showed that she tried desperately, but ultimately ineffectively, to fight for her life. Ron seemed to have been dispatched much more quickly than Nicole. His life ended as a result of a fatal knife wound to the neck. Trained in martial arts, he fought hard, but he was cornered in that little garden alcove. He had 22 wounds to his body, mostly defensive wounds, but was ultimately dispatched and tossed aside like rubbish. The murders were swift, efficient, brutal, messy. I think that's such a good way to describe it as as messy, especially. Yeah. I, I always remember the kind of the pathway with the gates and you can understand how, yeah, he'd have been cornered and just there's, yeah, no matter how much he trained, this was a shock and you know he wasn't prepared for this he had no way to fight back and escape just both oh it's just really sad isn't it both of them and of course let's not forget that throughout this ambush nicole and oj's two children sydney aged eight and justin aged five lay asleep in their beds on the second floor of the house so they were just meters away throughout this attack The police were rapidly dispatched to the scene and once they realised the identity of the victim and her very famous ex-husband, four police officers were sent directly to the home of OJ Simpson to ensure that he did not hear about his ex-wife's death from the media. Simpson lived in a far more affluent neighbourhood, a five-minute drive away in a multi-million pound home which boasted a swimming pool and a life-size statue of the man himself. I mean, that's, if that's Says not ego, what is it? Yeah. yeah, crikey. His palatial mansion boasted a suite of privacy measures, including a high wall around the perimeter of the property, designed to deter the prying eyes of paparazzi and fans. In the grounds of Simpson's house, there was a collection of guest houses for his many visitors. Visitors who included the rich, the famous and the connected. On the night in question, in these houses, Simpson was hosting his housekeeper, a long-staying friend, and his eldest daughter. The police arrived at Simpson's home at 5am. Despite knocking loudly, there was no answer, but they were conscious of their direct instructions from the chief brass to inform Simpson of the deaths, and so they kept knocking. Some officers noticed a car, a white Bronco parked badly outside the property as if it had been abandoned in a rush. On the door of the car was a stain that looked remarkably like blood. 
and now the police were worried. They didn't know at this point that O.J. Simpson was safely in a hotel in Chicago, where he'd been doing some broadcasting work. They didn't know that he'd left L.A. at 11.45pm the previous evening. All they knew was that they were under huge pressure from the media, and career-ending criticism lay in store for them if they put a foot wrong. They also knew that Tinseltown had a chequered history of stalkers who had taken murderous action against the stars they were obsessed with. And Simpson was a celebrity held in very high esteem. It didn't bear thinking that he himself could have been the target, that there could have been a second crime scene, a third body lying behind the intimidating brick wall surrounding the property. So the police were worried and they vaulted the wall and gained entry into his home. Once inside, the officers got busy. One woke Simpson's daughter, trying to get a contact for him, while another looked around the property. The third officer woke the house guest, Kato Kalin, and questioned him about Simpson's location and about any unusual goings-on. And it was at this point that Simpson went from heartbroken family member to prime suspect, as each officer came across something suspicious. The officer who had woken Simpson's daughter had finally managed to locate and contact Simpson at his hotel to inform him of the death of his ex-wife. A shocked Simpson vowed to get the first plane back, but never once asked how the death had occurred, whether it was an accident or something else. It was almost like he already knew that information. It is an odd one not to even ask a question because... I feel like that's got to be your first question, hasn't it? What the hell Are has you happened? Sure? Like, how do you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just... And, it's mm, damning. It, it's weird. And we have said before, people in shock behave weirdly. People who are grieving behave unusually to what they usually behave like. You don't know how you're going to react in a situation until you're in it. So we can't say it for definite, but it's, you know, there we go. That's a bit of an odd one to start us off with. Yeah, most definitely. The officer who was looking around the front of the grounds found a trail of blood droplets leading from the front gate where the white Bronco was parked, right up to the house. Remembering the blood droplets at the crime scene, this felt like a continuation of the trail from Nicole and Ron's bodies. Mark Furman, the officer questioning Kaylin, was looking around the back of the guest houses where Kaylin claimed to have heard noises at 10.45pm. It was here that Furman found a second glove which appeared to be a matching glove to the one found at the crime scene. This glove would become one of the pivotal pieces of evidence in this case. With three different findings, all suspicious, a warrant was called for, and a car was sent to pick up Simpson from the airport. And that glove, I think, you know, even if you're not familiar with all the intricacies of this case, you'll know that a glove is involved at some point, and it features heavily in the trial. It's quite key. And the only thing I always find a little bit odd is how they say that the car looked as if it had like been hurriedly put somewhere. And I do wonder, like, how neatly would I park my car if I lived in like a nice walled place? Yeah. Would I would I park up neatly and or would I just ditch my car wherever? I always wonder about that. Because you can, yeah. If you if you've got a decent amount of space, you're just gonna do yeah. what the fuck you want, perhaps. Um yeah, it's always I mean, an that's interesting subjective. one, isn't it? Because we're going to always look at it thinking from his guilt rather than anything else. But yeah. At this point, let's take a step back and dive into O.J. Simpson's early life. Arunthal James Simpson was born on the 9th of July in 1947 in San Francisco in California. 
His mother was a hospital administrator and his father was a chef and a bank custodian and he grew up in the housing projects in San Francisco. This was not a wealthy family and while racial segregation was officially at an end, the oppression of black people and the racism and discrimination they experienced in every walk of life kept many impoverished at this time. As a child, Simpson developed rickets, which can result from a poor diet, and he had to wear leg braces to encourage the proper development of his bones. His football career started in high school, where he learnt quickly to play both offence and defence, settling into a role as running back, which got him a scholarship to the University of Southern California. In 1965, around 5% of the college population was made up of black students, and these were mostly middle-class students from affluent backgrounds. For O.J. Simpson, a black boy from the working classes, this would have been a matter of extreme pride for himself, his family and for his community. Oh, absolutely. I mean, to be able to get that far and have a scholarship as well, incredible. Yeah, and this I just want to... Rachel has um, put a side note about the projects in America because I know in, in a few cases where we've gone to America, we've talked about the projects and I've kind of referred to them as, oh, they're a bit like a council housing estate that we have mm. here in the UK. Yeah. And they kind of are like that, but they're a bit more interesting than that because they were a solution, and I've not got Rachel's specific notes on this next to me now, but they were a solution to, um, you know, huge rents in quite affluent areas, actually, sought-after areas where rich people had moved in and driven up the price of rents and property, and it meant that communities living there really struggled then to have any kind of standard of, of housing. So, yeah, huge tower blocks were erected and the rent was subsidised heavily. Um, and really, I think it was something like 30% of what the market rent would have been. Yeah, I've got Rachel's notes here and that's exactly it, 30% of the household income. Ah, that um, was it, yeah. Yeah, so it's based on yeah. income for the household. But the interesting thing is that... Um, although that was deemed to be a solution uh, for people that, that didn't really have the money to continue to live in these areas, it meant that at this time in, in certain parts of America that the black population were generally the ones who struggled to get jobs that paid well and were therefore generally the people who were living in the, the project. So they were kind of segregated. You know, it wasn't that that it was set out to achieve that, but they ended up being segregated in these projects, which I just think is a shame because it, I think it had the correct kind of idea around it, but perhaps it was just never going to work at that time. Yeah, it's one of those things that you can look back and kind of ask the questions, but I, I guess at the time it was trying to do the right thing and yeah, I, trying sure, to help absolutely. people and trying to support, but you are, you're you're really segregating people even more by making that section of even just in, within that one in, one place you know you've made that section separate yeah yeah um so you know oj simpson had done good he'd done his community proud and he was showing working class black boys that they could be successful in american society and he was a true role model of the american dream simpson's academic record at university was to be frank, abysmal. But on the field, he was an icon. It was a different story. 
1969, he was chosen for professional team The Buffalo Bills, where he was nicknamed The Juice. From here, he set touchdown records and was the first player to rush over 2,000 yards. And both myself and Rachel don't have a fucking clue what that means, but apparently it's pretty damn impressive. Oh, I've got no idea. No idea. No idea either. But it's interesting, isn't it? You know, not necessarily academic. I don't think he was... Um, great at reading and writing from things I remember about this case but to be that good on the sports field it's one of those things where you see people get the scholarships that and it's it's so rare isn't it really even now that schooling hasn't moved on from everybody should be taught the same and actually some people academically aren't going to be the same and aren't going to do as well as others Mm. but then they are gifted in a different way practically or like this in a sports way it's one of those few times where you realize that sometimes people are like schooling systems do work properly for everyone who perhaps is is different in different ways but the majority of the time our schooling systems are still yeah Yeah. everyone should do the same i like your thinking you know this is yeah these kind of scholarships were great because it recognized different talents and really it was a gift you said you know gifted and this wasn't just a talent he was supremely gifted uh in this uh field in 1978 after injury simpson moved to the san francisco 49ers for two years before retiring Now, American football is an extremely physically demanding game. We've all seen snippets of games or whole games, and it's pretty fucking brutal. And most careers end when the body can just basically take no more of this punishing sport. A professional career lasting 12 years is relative longevity, and the working-class black boy from the poor neighbourhood was, and still is by many, considered to be the greatest running back of all time. Which is a, a huge legacy, regardless of what has or hasn't happened i think no i agree i think it's an interesting one because we've obviously talked about oscar historius um quite topical obviously with with what's going on at the moment that he's potentially going to be able to apply for parole and and that sort of thing but we did say at the time we we can't take away the amazing sporting achievements it doesn't that doesn't really have you don't take that away from someone when they do something bad or potentially do something bad. No, the, the records still, have been that's achieved. That's still true. There. Yeah. Yeah, it's still true. It's tainted. The memory, the legacy yeah, of it is tainted. But yeah, the, the achievement is, is still the same. Mm. So after retirement, ever the charmer, Simpson moved into a career in broadcasting and acting, playing the part of unlucky Officer Nordberg in the Madcap and very popular Naked Gun films. Have you seen any of those? Oh, I I always watched them as a child. My dad, yeah, my dad was always found those really funny and great. And so, yeah, they, we did see those quite a lot when we were children. I don't think I've watched them since for a long time, though. As an adult, I might have to go back to them. Yeah, I feel like they could potentially be very dated watching them now. I, think I don't know. They're going to be. I don't think that it's potentially. I think we're going to watch those and go. Okay, Ooh, yeah, you're that right. doesn't seem like you could say that anymore. <laughs> no, great, great films though, and I I remember watching them as a kid. And weirdly, my dad loved them. Oh, and, such a dad um, thing. It's such a dad thing, clearly. And I remember seeing O.J. Simpson in the films, in that role. I never knew his background at that time. So before this trial happened you know when I just was a young kid watching these films I, I kind of remembered him from from those films but yeah I didn't know who he was I just to me he was just an actor and yeah I don't good think one, I ever really knew who any of them were but yeah yeah 
Simpson's rising profile brought his fame to a new audience. He was always well-dressed and he was charismatic too. He was known in broadcasting as the only on-screen talent who always brought Christmas presents for the backstage crew. His image was everything to him and he worked hard to maintain the likeable, attractive and clean-cut appearance that he valued so much. O.J. Simpson was an aspirational role model to the working-class black communities that he came from. He was deified by sports fans. He was loved by film audiences. He was a hero that most believed could do no wrong. But behind closed doors, O.J. Simpson was not the man his public image led us to believe. He was a man prone to violence and control. His early life of poverty led him into gang membership. He was a petty criminal who spent time in a juvenile institution. And he was offered a lifeline to a different world when he was introduced to football. Simpson met his first wife, Marguerite Whitley, in college before he became famous. She'd been waitressing in a club that he'd gone to. They were together for 11 years and had three children together. The marriage would have been a trial on any couple, what with Simpson's constant training and travel schedule for games, but with the accidental drowning of their third child, Aaron, and the descent into depression and alcoholism of Marguerite, it was a particularly challenging union for this couple. When they met, Simpson was a rising college star. When they split, he was a household name, a hero with some very powerful friends. And women were throwing themselves at him and he didn't see any reason to say no. Whilst very few marriages survived the death of a child, it was actually Simpson's constant cheating that was the final straw in this one. To do something like always bringing Christmas presents, I mean... That's really going above and beyond to put on your public face. Yeah, and this that was just contrived. shows what kind of person this is. Because then to to not really have any sort of see any need to keep your marriage safe and secure and your family life safe and secure to just be like, nope, I've got this, but you know, I've got the option to just sleep with whoever I want and I can do what I want because I'm me it starts to really paint a picture of who he would become, doesn't it? It really does. And I I don't know too much about Marguerite. I think we leave her here. Um, But I really feel for her because I I have no doubt that that was a a very difficult marriage for her to endure. And I kind of dread to think of the abuse that she potentially suffered at his hands. Um, Certainly abuse in terms of self-esteem. And I feel like she met a tragic end. I can't remember um, we'll find out for part two and uh, and revisit that. I can't remember. You're right. So yeah, same as you. I mean, so yeah, we'll have to have yeah. a look into that. In echoes of how Simpson had met Marguerite, Nicole came into his life as a waitress too in a restaurant that he frequented. Nicole had just graduated high school with plans to go to college. A homecoming queen and one of four sisters, her blonde locks gained her attention wherever she went. She was bubbly, always happy and smiling, and it was that combination of looks and personality that instantly drew the older, married Simpson into her orbit. She was everything his wife wasn't, and the power imbalance right from the start would prove to be a recipe for trouble. She was 18, he was 30. She had no money, no education, no skills, but she was stunningly beautiful. He was rich, famous and powerful, and through his career he had experienced the world. At six foot one and over fifteen stone of honed muscle, he was an imposing presence. Nicole was a petite five foot five inches and weighed only eight and a half stone. 
Simpson had powerful and important friends and spent many evenings entertaining senior members of the local police force in his home. He was a man who at this point was used to being the king of the world, where lesser people bowed to his will. He was used to being in control and getting things his own way. The relationship was by many accounts volatile, but equally the couple must have had some happy moments as they had two beautiful children, Sidney Brooke and Justin Ryan. Nicole was a devoted, hands-on soccer mom, and she created a home full of laughter for the children. But Simpson was controlling. It started with financial control. When they married, Brown had to sign a prenup, which entitled her to very little in the event of a divorce. Simpson also encouraged Brown to drop out of college, essentially rendering her entirely dependent on him, and leaving her with no marketable skills of her own. After we discussed financial control as, a, as an element of abuse last episode, you just, you just kind of start to realise how often that happens, that, that taking, you know, it might not seem like it at the time, you might feel like that person just mm. wants you at home because they love you, but actually taking you out of education, taking you away from being able to support yourself in work or with skills is huge. And it's such a, a really key thing that, that like tool for abusers to utilise. And I, I don't think it would have been necessarily recognised back then, even by oh, Nicole. It definitely wouldn't have been recognised yeah, back it, then, would it, it? It would have been seen as, wow, you know, this rich guy, this powerful guy has come in to sweep me off my feet and to look after me. And yeah. that's what a man should do, and that's what he's doing. So, yeah, yeah I, I don't think even Nicole would have realised, let alone those around her. But Simpson would have known what he was doing. He was playing a, a game. He had a game plan here. When they did eventually split up, Simpson carried on controlling Nicole, making her go to court to seek financial support for their children, as he refused to give it without a fight. And he even reported Nicole to the US tax authorities when she refused to submit to his will after they had split up. This was a move of great callousness, as it meant that she had to move out of her home and out of the neighbourhood that she'd chosen to raise the children in. So, you know, huge amount of disruption for the children as a result of this. And it essentially left Nicole broke at this point. Simpson didn't care about his kids. He just wanted Nicole to know that he was the one that was still pulling the strings. Simpson didn't stop at financial control. He was also violent towards Nicole. During their marriage, police were called eight times to the marital home over domestic disturbances. And only on the last time, New Year's Day in 1989, was Simpson charged with anything he would later be forced to complete community service. At this point, he stated that on the night in question, Nicole had been drunk and had started tearing up the house. He said Nicole was a strong girl, one of the most conditioned women, and that she had hit him, but he'd never hit her. He denied being the cause of the documented injuries, the hand marks around her throat, the cut lip, the black eye, and the bruised forehead. He was the real victim here, as she had hit him. He claimed it was one bad night in a great marriage and that they were both guilty. Although strangely, he didn't have a mark on him, while Nicole looked like Mike Tyson's punch bag. I'm not being funny, but she's, what, eight and a half stone? She's five yeah. foot five. This guy is an ex-professional football player at six foot one. First of all, like, we know that she wasn't some bodybuilder or whatever, anyway but even if she was surely a five foot five woman even if they are incredibly physically strong 
really? Are they going to be the one to beat him up? And then also, how would they be the one with all those injuries? And like, none of it makes any sense. I, I know I'm making a very obvious point because clearly it's nonsense, but it's just so frustrating that he has the police in his pockets, you know, round his house for dinner all the time. He's got these influential fam- friends that it means that he can get away with this and just get community service. And it was, this is nearly, well, this would be 30 years ago plus, and domestic violence was viewed very differently to how it's viewed now. And it was it was deemed to be something that you just needed to sort out between yourselves and not a matter for the police to become involved in. So it, it was also uh, a case of a slightly different culture at play as well. Nicole, like so many victims of domestic violence, refused to press charges, claiming the police never did anything anyway. And besides, she probably thought that it would just make things worse if she did press charges. Do you know what? I kind of agree with her on both of those. Sadly, I can understand exactly where she's coming from. The police wouldn't do anything. No. Nicole wasn't a stupid woman. She knew the position she was in. Members of the police force were enjoying star-studded parties with Simpson and the public lapped up his charm. He was still the juice. Nicole, on the other hand, was not held in such high regard. She was dismissed by the public as a money-grabbing bimbo. But as I said earlier, in actual fact, she had very little money. She came out of this marriage with pretty much fuck all. Um, and yeah, it's um, it's just... An example, really, of Simpson having the police in his pocket, isn't it? And also the way that society will will deify these celebrities and then kind of think, well, the woman's just a money-grabbing bimbo. Well, actually, he, she's his ex-wife. She has his children that she's, live, you know, they're living with her and she's looking after. It's not just somebody trying to get his money. No, she deserves to be kept in a lifestyle to which she had become accustomed to, the same as the children, that's only fair. And the the cruelty here is that five minutes up the road, OJ Simpson is living in a palatial mansion and Nicole is living in what was then a slightly down market area of Los Angeles, very lower middle class. It wasn't affluent by any means or impressive. And he's that's got the home of his houses. two kids. Yeah, he's got, he's got spare house in the grounds of his house. Yeah, he could literally let her have a guest house with the children. Yeah, but he of could course have done. not, because he needs to have the power and the control, and she needs to have nothing. Yeah, and he can't accept the fact that their marriage has come to an end, and and that that's the end of his control. No, he's not accepting that. He will accept that the marriage is over, but his control of Nicole will continue. Nicole was astute, and she kept a diary. This was never seen by the jury, but it outlined over 60 incidents of domestic violence, including how Simpson had tried to force her to have an abortion, how he threatened her with guns and how he beat and kicked her until she was black and blue. Her sister believed Nicole kept the diary as a witness, as she believed that Simpson would eventually murder her. In desperation, five days before she was killed, Nicole contacted a domestic violence shelter, stating that she was being stalked by her ex and that she didn't know what to do. After all, she couldn't go to the police because they were in Simpson's pocket. That is just really sad, isn't it's it? It's so sad because, you know, I, d- I don't know what happened when she sought that advice, but had had they been able to intervene, then there could have been a very different outcome here. And that was just mere days before she was murdered. And of course, like the reason it, the jury never saw this is you, you can't verify this. But, no. But it, it does... 
it does paint a picture and I, I appreciate why you can't just let everything go before a jury. I completely understand that, but um, it's, it is a real shame that it wasn't because it, it does really paint this picture of what life was like for Nicole. Yeah. And I think for the public, for the jury to really try and understand that actually the man that presents himself outwardly on television behaves very differently behind closed doors. That's kind of hard to get your head around, isn't it? It's a bit like if you think of a modern day celebrity who's happy and smiley and lovely on TV, and then you hear that actually they're a complete bitch or a complete twat off camera, you sort of think, no, they can't be, not them. They come across as so nice. So this would have been damning because although not substantiated evidence, it would have really been a character assassination against OJ Simpson. And and his defence didn't want that. But then also, I guess it could sway people as well. So, yeah, which wouldn't be fair because it's not. It isn't substantiated. Yeah. Back at the crime scene, with a thorough search completed and further evidence collected, there was only one course of action now: to arrest and charge Simpson for the murder of his ex-wife and her friend Ron Goldman. Given the profile of the suspect, special considerations were put in place for Simpson to self-surrender. He was to present himself at an unidentified police station so that the media would not capture the arrest. This turned out to be a mistake because Simpson absconded. Honestly, what did they think? Yeah, was I mean, like, don't let him hand himself in. He is the number one suspect, the prime suspect in a double homicide. You need to go and drag him in by his ankles. Don't allow special dispensation because he's a fucking celebrity. Or if you are going to allow special dispensation arrive to arrest him in unmarked cars that the media don't realise yeah, or, yeah. or go round the back. <laughs> don't yeah. just expect him to hand himself in because he's not going to. No, that was a huge mistake. All that Simpson left was an apparent suicide note which his lawyer read out on live TV. An alert was put out on local media and all police channels and it didn't take long for a sharp-eyed observer to spot his vehicle on a California highway in the vicinity of Nicole's grave. Now I just have to make it clear here that Nicole was actually buried just three days after she'd been murdered. So it was really swift. So this is a few days on from the murder that we have OJ Simpson uh, spotted on this California highway. So it became clear, because he was in the vicinity of Nicole's grave, that Simpson had been on his way to visit it. But his plan was anticipated by media, and when he turned up there, he found that it was staked out by paparazzi. So he came up with a new plan at this point. And I think, I feel like his plan was to take his own life at her grave. I'm sure I've read that, I could be wrong. Um, but I think I feel I've like definitely that heard plan. that that's a theory of some, of, at some point as well, definitely. Whether it's credible or not, I don't know. So Simpson decided to head home. The police cars edged in, attempting to stop the vehicle on this highway when a crazed-looking driver, a friend of Simpson's, screamed, he has a gun, he's going to kill himself. Sure enough, Simpson was on the back seat of the vehicle with a gun pointed at his own head, hugging framed pictures of his family. What ensued was the strangest car chase in history. I think that is the best way to describe it. It's so yeah. bizarre. Do you did you see any of it at the time? Because I know some of it was broadcast here live. No, because I'd have been like six. So <laughs> no, even, I'm sorry, Bethan, Yeah, yeah. Even if even if it had been, and my parents were interested, I don't think I would have either either really been aware of what was going on or, or really been interested. But I have since 
um, seen like the footage and, and all of those kind of videos from the time. Yeah, I feel like I'm not sure if I saw actual live footage at the time, but I remember on the day seeing on the news the footage. So it might have been from a few hours previously. But yeah, I remember it. I remember seeing the car chase and it was just quite bizarre because I think they cleared the highway of all traffic. So it was just um, Simpson's car and loads of police cars following it. They, it was never going to not end in him being apprehended. Yeah, it was just it was really odd. It was like watching something happen in slow motion, to be honest. Yeah. Mindful of their suicidal charge, but also fully aware that he was a suspect in a double murder, the police carried out a very bizarre and slow car chase, as I've kind of alluded to. The media helicopters had picked up the trail by this point, and the whole chase was broadcast live across the nation. And many inter- many TV shows were actually interrupted, in America in particular, to broadcast live footage of this car chase. So people in neighbourhoods along the route of the car chase came out of their houses and swiftly put together banners were held over motorway bridges in support of O.J. Simpson. Whole Isn't communities, it just it's, really it's, it's horrible. odd to think of now? And communities were coming out of their houses to cheer him. And an estimated 95 million people in America saw this live on TV. Um, and yeah, you can only imagine how the families of Nicole and Ron would have been feeling at this time, still raw with the loss of their loved ones. Watching this, the prime and only suspect being hailed a hero and worshipped across the nation as he's in this slow motion car chase. It would give you like a real awful sense of foreboding as well. Like if this is what people think during his apprehension, what on earth is the trial going to be like if he's brought to trial? Because People are loving him when he's supposed to be being arrested. And, you know, you would just start to worry, like, if this is what everyone thinks about him, is anybody going to want to convict him? Yeah, I mean, at this point, at this point, he was the number one suspect. Nobody's heard any evidence that mitigates against that. So everybody is thinking, really, that, yeah, he's probably done this, but people are still going out into the street and cheering him. Just weird. The car chase ended relatively anticlimactically when the vehicle reached Simpson's home and a broken-looking Simpson surrendered to the waiting police. Out of sight of the media helicopters, he was cuffed and taken to jail. What had been the point? A guilty husband saying one final goodbye to the wife he killed? An attempt at spiritual guidance, perhaps? Or a cynical ploy to get the sympathy of the nation as a deeply distressed and traumatised grieving man? After all, a suicidal man couldn't possibly be a murderer, could he? And I think that is so valid, isn't it? Because if he, you know, he's painting himself as this grieving widower and father and he was besotted with this woman and he can't live without her, he can't go on. So surely if that's how he's behaving, he can't have killed her. Why would he have killed her if he's making out that he can't live without her, which is absolutely what he was making out? And once again, he's really showing that he knows how to put on a public face. Yeah, it's it's pantomime. It's theatre, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or what he thinks the people want, at least. It's, yeah. It's he knows what he you know he he knows what he thinks that he should be acting like. Yeah. 
yeah, and, and how he he's got a perception of how that is going to look, and whether that is perceived that way by the general public or not, it doesn't really matter because in his warped head, he's thinking, this is the plan of action, this is what I'm going to do, this is how it's going to look, this is how yeah. it will be perceived, and this is how I will be perceived. I will be perceived as an innocent man. Yeah. With Simpson safely in custody and the evidence gathered from the primary crime scene and the Simpson residence, the court date was set. This would be the trial of the century and there was huge pressure on both sides of the court. The prosecution knew that there was going to be no bail and to hold a star of Simpson's calibre in jail for a lengthy time while preparing the case would not look good in the media. The defence equally didn't want their client locked up for long, as the longer Simpson was in jail, the more his star status would fade, and they wouldn't be able to rely on the goodwill of his football and acting career to see them through. The media were circling like a pack of bloodthirsty wolves, and to leave a long delay between the arrest and the trial would allow them to invent all kinds of preposterous theories and unearth many damaging stories, all of which could impact the potential jury the media would prove to be an enormous problem from the outset. They didn't care how they impacted on the criminal case and they didn't care about upsetting the families of Nicole or Ron Goldman either. They cared only that they scooped the other TV shows and got a unique story on the crime of the century. The media started their onslaught by requesting the taped 911 calls of Nicole calling the police following a domestic violence incident. The recording was subsequently broadcast on talk shows across the country. Nicole's trembling voice reached across the airwaves and she could be heard asking desperately for the operator to dispatch police officers to her address. It would have been hard to be unmoved by this. The media then moved on to paying witnesses for TV interviews, a move nicknamed Cash for Trash. The media outlets do not care. They don't care about the trauma they're putting through the relatives of the victims. They don't care about potential future trials all they care about is being the first paper to have a story and they don't care who they trample on to get to that it's really really it makes me really cross it's 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 rage inducing just how unethical it is well it is and it was particularly unethical back then but what i would say is i'm not saying it's ethical now but it's better it's more heavily regulated here and across the pond so i'd like to think that this kind of behavior wouldn't be tolerated now um but that's not to say that underhand tactics aren't still employed by certain corners of the media anyone even remotely linked to the case was being approached by the media And when one witness went into hiding, they tracked her down and continued to harass her. They offered money, relatively small amounts, for interviews in newspapers or on TV. They offered five minutes of fame, and the ordinary people of Los Angeles got caught up in the rush of the theatre, and they compromised themselves, and with it, of course, their evidence. The importance of court evidence is that it is facts presented without opinion, and that it's credible. The media encouraged opinion and discussion. Theories and commentary on evidence was common without any requirement to substantiate it. Guilt without due process. You'd have to have been living in a cave to escape the speculation and hypotheses surrounding this case. The first but by no means the last witness to fall for the media was a woman who saw Simpson driving his car between his house and the crime scene at approximately 10.45pm on the night of the murders. However, her description in the media of Simpson as like a madman gone mad insane meant that she was never called to the stand. Oh, well, yeah, of course not. Totally compromised. Oh, 
testimony that was never heard, that would have been heard if she hadn't been brought up by the media. And just even to be able to say, factually, I saw him drive between point A and point B is enough at the trial. And you've just gone and and told the media and, and probably allowed herself to be led by the reporter. Yeah, I don't I don't fully blame her. I think, you know, she wouldn't have been au fait with these things and probably didn't even know what she could or couldn't do. Maybe the media was spinning a yarn of you really need to get this on record now and, and get your side of the story put across in your own words now because when this goes to trial and you give testimony you'll be ripped apart and your words will be distorted and twisted so you've got to do this for you know your own integrity you just don't know what they said or didn't say you don't even know if she even said those words specifically or it was quoted incorrectly but because she was given money that she had to they could have embellished it, it. Knows, or she might yeah. have felt pressure to embellish it, mm-hmm. or she might have just been a money-grabbing bitch and didn't give a fuck about the trial and thought, yeah, I'll take, you know, the $5,000 or whatever they paid her. Or, I, I guess, I'd never really thought about it before, but like you said, she might have just not known that saying something inflammatory and, and with an opinion could be damaging, and that is genuinely what he looked like when she saw him. And yeah. she feels like she's doing the right thing by coming out and going... He looked like this. And, yeah. I think it just undermined, you know, had that been testimony, witness testimony in court, it would have been presented in the right way. But I think the way that she described it in this sort of salacious, this salacious description of him, not factual, Mm -hmm. it it really undermined what, what she'd actually allegedly seen. As witness after witness was compromised, the defence claimed that a fair trial was not possible and that the prosecution must drop all the charges against their client. This was setting the stage for what would be an almost impossible case to present. The judge in the case believed that he could run a fair trial and he also believed that it was important for the case to be heard. No shit. He was not immune to the rush of celebrity himself and the thought of presiding over such a high-profile trial meant that he had a vested interest in ensuring that it was neither delayed nor moved to a different location, both of which could have been options at this point. The first major challenge for the judge would be the jury selection. Normally anyone summoned would be on the jury automatically, but the potential for bias in this case was enormous. The judge also had to consider the length of the trial. He predicted that the case would last around five months, during which the jury would have to be isolated from the rest of the world in a hotel to prevent them seeing anything prejudicial in the media. How mad is that? Because they don't do that anymore. They don't do that in this country, certainly. They used to. If a jury was deliberating, they'd be put up in a hotel. Now that doesn't happen, but not just during deliberations. The judge was saying that they're going to have to be in a hotel for the entirety of the trial, which is crazy, you know, at least five months. But you can understand why. I can, yeah, but, but a huge amount but, yeah, of disruption to their lives. Yeah, Absolutely mad, yeah. So, of course, this led to loads of logistical concerns and immediately eliminated huge swathes of people who wouldn't be able to get the time off from work or who had caring responsibilities. And Rachel's made a a really interesting side note here because this made for quite a specific makeup of jewellery because you've generally got people who aren't working. So you've got unemployed people, therefore potentially uneducated housewives, people that 
Um, I mean, I don't want to make a judgment on housewives, so I don't know why I'm kind of digging myself into a hole. But I think certainly people that weren't employed, unemployed people, weren't as educated as those that would have had jobs, if that makes sense. I'll stop digging that hole now. No, I think um, this is the thing. It's that the people who were, you know, the judge and also the prosecution and the defence and all of the people in that legal um, kind of field this was the difficulty they had was saying well we don't think that these people will understand they we don't think they're educated it's not enough it's not that you didn't think they were but that the these legal people didn't feel that these people would be educated enough to be on a jury but at the same time a doctor cannot be off work for five months or another lawyer couldn't be off for five months or even just like um someone who's I don't know, like, I I guess, like, if you had someone who was a teacher, you'd see them as highly educated, but they couldn't be off work. So um, it's an interesting kind of note, isn't it, that the jury needs to be people who can be available for this length of time. But also, we don't want people who we don't think are smart enough to understand. Well, what do you want then? (laughs) Like, what are you trying to get here? It's an impossible task. And I suppose, yeah, the point is, I think it's fair to say that if you had a bunch of unemployed people versus a bunch of employed people, the more intelligent of the two groups is going to be the employed group. That's fair to say. I stand by that. So, yeah, the makeup of the jury was potentially going to be an issue. But, of course, as Rachel has pointed out as well, that's up to the prosecution to make sure that the way they present the evidence is clear enough for anyone to understand. Like, that shouldn't be an issue. No, you shouldn't have to have a certain IQ to be on a jury. No, and actually, it doesn't mean that you're not intelligent. You might actually be more street smart or whatever the right phrase Mm. is. You've got logic and you've got common sense it kind of shouldn't make any difference whatsoever. They should just be able to explain some of the more um, technical terms, maybe in a way that makes more sense for people. But yeah, that's that's up to the prosecution to describe everything in the right way. Surely mm. that should be it, rather than we need to have certain people on our jury. And I will move on in a minute because I feel like I'm labouring the points, but... The whole point of a jury is that it's a real cross-section representation of the community in which that crime's occurred, and that's not going to be the case if you're having to target people that don't work or that are elderly and therefore retired, um, or at that time, people that were homemakers, which is going to be women, essentially, 30 years ago. So the makeup of the jury is just going to be skewed, isn't it? So I think, yeah, it's, it's totally a fair point. The judge also had to make sure that the jury hadn't already been too tainted by media coverage. At this point, most of the population had already made up their mind about the guilt of the defendant. Because of the predicted length of the trial, it was important to have alternates as well. So the defence and prosecution were tasked with selecting 24 people. At this point, both the defence and the prosecution had outlined their respective cases. The prosecution were arguing for a domestic violence motive, while the defence were arguing police racism and conspiracy. Both sides sought the services of professional jury selection experts, and both came up with questionnaires and interview questions that would weed out any unfairly prejudiced jurors. The defence jury experts showed data that suggested that black women were going to be more likely to vote for an acquittal. The prosecution ignored their jury expert. 900 people were sent summons. Each was asked extensive questions about their relationship with the LAPD, their experience with domestic violence, their love of sports, 
and their awareness of the news coverage. And even within the complex process of vetoes and objections, out of the final group, nine of the members responded in initial questionnaires that Simpson was less likely to have killed his wife because he was good at football. This was this is what they were dealing with. Like, for fuck's sake. You're literally getting yourself taken off that jury selection. Yeah. Like, how fucking stupid are you? I take everything back where I tried to not dig myself into a hole. It was full of fucking stupid people at this point. No, it's not. It's it's full of people who don't understand and don't, like, aren't aware of the nuances of the legal system. These aren't, this isn't necessarily stupid. This is somebody who is asked a question and is telling the truth. I think this because... This is, yeah, based on my experience, my, yeah, my values. I, I this disagree is what I with you there. I don't I think, think that's it's fair, necessarily stupid. It's a much, much more balanced argument you've presented than I have, for sure. The prosecution were fighting a loser from the start because they'd ignored their jury expert. Jury selection took two months alone and it was a harbinger of the trial to come, which, rather than five months, locked the jury away from the world for nearly a year. How mad is that? It's a long, long old time. Before we rush headlong into the trial, which we'll be doing in part two, it's important to identify some of the key players in the defence team. This team of lawyers were nicknamed the Dream Team and were one of the most expensive defence teams ever, costing an estimated $5 million, which to be fair was quite a chunk of the reported $11 million that Simpson was said to be worth at the time. So he's probably had to sell stuff and liquidate assets to pay for this team because, yeah, he was super successful and rich, but this is a huge cost even to someone like him. Despite that, money was no object to the team, with members of the defence having access to teams of private investigators. Over the course of the trial, there were 11 lawyers, each with their own specialism. There was a Harvard lecturer who had consulted on many cases before. There was a forensic expert, a DNA expert, a plea bargain expert, and there was even a Kardashian, as we said at the beginning. The biggest players were Robert Shapiro and Johnny Cochran. Shapiro was initially put in charge of the defence team, but his childish antics and his courtroom inexperience was eventually ousted by civil rights lawyer Johnny Cochran. Cochran was a passionate defender of all clients and had an impressive list of clients after Simpson, including Tupac, Michael Jackson, Snoop Dogg and Sean P. Diddy Coombs. But he had a special interest in cases where there was police misconduct or brutality. Cochrane was a charismatic speaker and a theatrical lawyer who brought life to the sometimes dull proceedings. He was also determined to make this a case not about murder, but about race. Not all of the lawyers were in it for the money, and some of the retainers were actually quite small. The anticipated fame from being part of this high-profile case was enough to keep some of them involved, even when they didn't appear to have much of a role in the team. I mean, some people were doing it because it was the right thing to do, not for the money, not for the fame, but there were lots of people on this team with the wrong motivations for being there. And on a team of mostly white, very educated, well-qualified rich men, the egos ran amok. It didn't take long for rumours of infighting and sniping to arise between the men, and they were struggling to work together at times. Shapiro seemed to be at the heart of most of these conflicts, a man who was so concerned about his own image that he had hired the daughter of Marlon Brando to clip articles that mentioned him from the national newspapers. 
He was more used to pleading clients out as well, a thing Simpson refused outright to do. And so taking a case to trial, he was basically out of his comfort zone and out of his depth, but he was unwilling to admit that. His running of the defence was disorganised and he took petty arguments with other lawyers to heart and he leaked loads of stories to the press, which in turn led to a giant media frenzied tit-for-tat airing of dirty laundry, which would have much advantaged the prosecution, to be fair. In the end, Simpson, from jail, had to step in like a parent dealing with toddlers fighting over the same toy. And in this ego-driven pissing contest, I fucking love how Rachel describes that. I mean, it is exactly what it's this exactly is. what it is. It's, it's a dick it slinging it's contest. Just, oh my gosh, you guys have all got the same end goal. So what yeah. the hell are you doing? An image was everything. Everyone seemed to have forgotten that two young people had lost their lives in the most brutal of ways. So these egos were just out of control and getting in the way of what really mattered here: getting justice for Ron and Nicole. The prosecution, by contrast, had less personnel, but retained the personality issues. Marcia Clark loved trials and was passionate about justice for victims, but she was abrasive and jury members didn't warm to her. In fact, she was referred to as a castrating bitch by members of a focus group convened to garner thoughts on how to approach the case. That is um, phrase du jour that I'll be using. I mean, that is quite the phrase, isn't it? But what I would say about her is I feel like... If she was in court today, nobody would have an issue with her. Nobody would think that of her. They'd see her as someone quite strong, a really strong, powerful female character in this whole case, in this whole trial. I think nowadays people would have a lot of respect for her. They would see her as, well, possibly even not notice and not even be a thing. I think it would just be that lawyer or that part of the prosecution team is incredible. Like that would just be it. Like she's doing yeah. this for this job. She's she's passionate. She's she's really passionate about justice. That's really, really good. But at this time, women... How, da- how women dare a woman look, behave like this? Yeah, yeah, exactly. She should have had the face and the, the look and, and been all wonderful and kind and gentle and sweet and... No, like you you don't have to be. But at the time, yeah, I, I really think that I always really feel for her whenever I think of her because 30 years later, it wouldn't even, it would either be that she's highly respected because of that or it wouldn't even be an, a, a factor. She'd just be doing her job. Yeah, I, I think we've moved on so much over those 28 years. I think we've we moved to a point where she would have been celebrated for being a woman and being like that. And now we've moved even further where she would just be celebrated for being a badass in court and someone who was great at her job and really felt passionately about prosecuting people. Sex wouldn't have come into it. So it's interesting that it's only 28 years ago, but it feels like a lifetime ago in terms of how culture has shifted for the better. Another member of the prosecution, Christopher Darden, was far less experienced in trials and, as a young black man, was far more in touch with the racial issues involved in this trial. He swung between hero worship for Johnny Cochran and frustration at the theatrics of the man. Having never undertaken cases of this profile before, both Marcia and Christopher struggled with the new fame that was brought to them. 
Darden had pressure on him from his home communities for daring to prosecute the case of a working class black hero, which I totally understand. And I'm not saying it would have been the entirety of that community, but you can understand it, can't you? You know, how dare you go against this hero? He was still being deified in in large sections of the population and he should have been standing up for him. Marcia, on the other hand, experienced what we talked about, the integrated sexism of being a strong woman who the media detested. So, you know, that yeah, it's, you know, I won't labour the point again, but <laughs> they just really hated her because she was just deemed to be strong and pretty damn good, to be fair. Marcia experienced snarky comments when buying tampons. She had topless pictures of her sold to the media and even suffered from her husband using the long court hours as leverage in their divorce proceedings. Challenges that the defence team didn't have to face. Finally, with the jury selected, the prosecution and defence both prepared. It was time to get the show started. LA, home of Hollywood, was ready. And that is where we will draw a line under part one. We will be back now with part two. We'll see you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.